0: And Happy New Year's. You are listening to the Grok Science Show. I'm Steve Briscoe. Today's guest is Partha Mitra, a neuroscientist at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. A theoretical physicist by training, Dr. Mitra has since turned his attention to mapping neural circuitry in the mouse brain.
1: Well, I have a Ph.D. in theoretical physics, after which I uh, was at Bell Laboratories as a member of the theoretical physics department there. Uh, While I was there, I started working in neuroscience largely by analyzing different kinds of um, neuroscientific data sets, brain imaging data sets, electrophysiological data sets. Some of this is described in a book that I uh, wrote called Observed Brain Dynamics. Then I moved to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Uh, where more recently I have actually been engaged in an experimental project to map out the circuits of the mouse brain. So, you know, I have a theoretical physics background. I'm running an experimental neuroscience project. In my research work right now, the main work that I'm doing is, uh, rather than a particular system, trying to get an idea of the connectivity architecture of the entire uh, mouse brain, uh, of the mouse brain is just a convenient vertebrate mammalian brain that a lot of people study and what interests me are right now are not how a particular system works like the visual system or the motor system but how it all fits together and uh, the project I'm working on is essentially a large-scale neuroanatomy project so we are trying to map out the connectivity architecture at a a um, certain level which uh, permits us to study the whole brain at once. So I have a cross-disciplinary um, background.
0: In April of 2013, President Obama announced the Brain Initiative. This appeared to be an ambitious plan to understand how the human brain works, and what goes awry in various neurological pathologies. Behind the plan is a $100 million funding stimulus to promote brain research. Partha Mitra, has closely followed the BRAIN Initiative's development since its announcement and has been critical of its goals and practicality. I called Dr. Mitra to chat about the BRAIN Initiative, where it came from, and what it
1: means for neuroscience. I think that the first of these large initiatives comes from Europe, where uh, earlier in the year, the European Union funded a uh, large initiative to build computer uh, computational models of brains, Uh, I think uh, it's not entirely clear where the data for that model uh, will come from, so there is some skepticism about this, but the focus, I think, in the European project, which is a large-scale project, is to uh, build simulations of brains. And then uh, in the spring, there was an announcement that there would be a, a focused initiative, on the brain in the US. Initially I think it was not clear what that would be. Uh, there were some reports for example that this would involve measuring every spike from every neuron but eventually I think that that idea sort of went away. What the uh, focus became was development of tools that would help neuroscientists to record from many neurons but also to do other things. And You know, there have been various announcements which you can read in the press. There are different initiatives which have come out of that. One from DARPA, the uh, the NSF and NIH are all, you know, they've had meetings, and the NIH has recently put out requests for applications. um, So that sort of defines what kind of research people will be doing.
2: The first form the BRAIN Initiative came in was, referred to as BAM, or the Brain Activity Map. Uh, How has the current manifestation changed since BAM? What are the differences?
1: I I think that the emphasis has moved from a comprehensive mapping of brain activity to tools, development of tools that would perhaps permit the mapping of brain activity, but the focus has been on tools, although... uh, The uh, announcements that were made by DARPA for what they would do as part of this initiative are focused on deep brain stimulation, so uh, this is a particular form of therapy where the brain is directly electrically stimulated using implanted electrodes, and so the DARPA part of the initiative is quite clinically focused, in fact, whereas the other parts of the initiative have more of a basic science focus.
0: Most neuroscientists have rejected the notion that we will understand the brain in the next decade, or that we can record all of its neurons simultaneously. So instead, the Brain Initiative will help provide scientists with new technologies to study the brain. I asked Dr. Mitra what tools are needed and what will be done with them.
1: There are uh, direct electrical measurements, so people, I think, are trying to develop methods to have more electrodes. For example, there are optical methods, so there's a lot of interest in developing the sensors or even the imaging techniques um, that would permit optical measurements of neural activity. But this is typically indirect by having an optical sensor respond to calcium levels in neurons, and the calcium level indirectly can reflect sort of the transmembrane voltages uh, which is often what neuroscientists are more directly interested in when they're referring to neural activity, and uh, you know there are other other measurement tools. I, I don't think uh, you know it's. Uh, I, I cannot point to sort of a specific uh, research project that is going on now because this work is really starting, and people are going to write grants to the. NIH to the NSF to do the work, but what you can see is uh, the work that people have already been doing, which this would be, you know, maybe a continuation of, or maybe it would put more effort or focus on some parts of it, uh, but if you look at work that is already going on, then that's where uh, you would see the uh, development of multi-electrode recordings or uh, optical methods and so on.
2: These technologies you just discussed, uh, to what extent are these going to be feasible in humans, or what model systems are they best tailored
1: to? For humans, there are obvious uh, limitations because uh, many of these methods require surgical opening of the skull, uh, that is, you have to make a craniotomy, for example, if you wanted to uh, optically measure from the brain. There are circumstances, of course, in which humans have surgical openings in their skulls. For example, pre-surgical mapping during epilepsy or uh, what I was just telling you about deep brain uh, stimulation therapies involves inserting actual electrodes into the brain. So in those cases, there will certainly be uh, direct electrical measurements of uh, neural activity, uh, but those are limited. So if you look at, for example, the DARPA announcement, um, I think the total number of electrodes that they even target to have is going to be about 200. So that's a fairly small number. Then there are non-invasive methods, electroencephalography or magnetoencephalography, so where you measure voltages on the scalp or you measure magnetic fields which are outside of the brain that are generated by neural activity in the brain. There's also functional MRI, uh, which is probably the most widely used technique to measure human brain activity non-invasively. It has limitations in space and time because the spatial and temporal resolution are... Uh, limited both by uh, the physics of the measurements and also by the biology because the activity is measured indirectly through uh, the effects of the neural activity on blood flow. So measurements in humans have some very stringent limitations in uh, non-human animal models uh, where you can do craniotomies on a more regular basis. Um, people will implant many electrodes or observe larger parts of the brain optically or insert optical fiber and then you can look at the activity of, you know, perhaps hundreds of neurons at this time.
2: All this technology and innovation sounds like it's going to be very expensive. Where is the money proposed to come from and how is it going to be distributed? Where is it going to go? Like how do basic researchers get this funding?
1: That is well described in the press, you'll be able to see it in the various announcements that have been made. It's divided up between different agencies and also private institutes uh, participating. It is a relatively small fraction of the total NIH budget, even that budget that is devoted to neuroscience research. So I would say this is more a targeted effort and think uh, researchers would be accessing the funding by writing grants. So there are essentially calls for proposals which uh, are based on the broad directions of the grant or recommendations made by the BRAIN uh, Initiative Committee, uh, set up by the NIH or NSF, I presume, there will be uh, similar, uh, similar things. And the DARPA funding, for example, uh, I think those proposals, at least the pre-proposals, have already been submitted, is my understanding.
2: So is it still true that the proposed funding period for this is 10 years, or is it going to be indefinite or shorter? What's the timescale we're looking
1: at? At this time, I think people are just looking at the next year or a few-year timescale. What's going to unfold over 10 years, I think, still subject to planning and will be, I would imagine, determined iteratively. There's not like a 10-year plan right now. I mean, not that... I I think that there's an idea that there will be something unfolding over 10 years, but the more concrete things you'll see are for the next year, I think.
2: When the BRAIN initiative was first rolled out, there was a lot of criticism that the goals might be too vague or not well-defined. What were the initial goals, however vague they may be, and then what were people's concerns with those goals?
1: Well, one of the things that was said initially that there would be a recording of the activity of every neuron, and uh, even in the human brain, there was some implication that that would be the case. So there were two kinds of objections. One was that technological infeasibility, that you couldn't do it, and the other was the conceptual issues that should one exclusively focus on activity measurements, what does it mean to just record the activity if you are not looking at the uh, stimuli or the behavior That is, it's not placed in context. Um, What about other ways of looking at the nervous system? For example, it's uh, circuits. So I think people quickly abandoned that very initial idea of just uh, mapping neural activity. And then what has then come about is a more, I think, holistic approach where people are looking at multiple scales and multiple ways of looking at the brain and nevertheless trying to have some focus. So the goals have broadened, I think, since the very early days.
2: Is it safe to say that the overall emphasis is on brain activity, or is there room in here for other considerations like uh, development and evolution of the brain?
1: I think the emphasis is still on brain activity measurements, and I think even more particularly the emphasis on tool development. But I think that different, uh, you know, I mean, the different groups of people involved this uh, have somewhat different uh, takes on that or what they're doing. Also, I should say that what is going on here is more a conversation and discussion than a um, sort of a large centralized project, which could be compared with uh, people draw comparisons with large-scale physics projects or, you know, the uh, moonshot. I'm not sure if those comparisons are really warranted. There's nothing of that sort going on. There's not like one simple goal which everybody agrees on and then doing the engineering to implement that goal. So if you say that put a person on the moon, that's a simple goal, and then there's a big project to um, do the engineering to meet that goal, right? So I don't think there's any parallel to that. Understanding how the brain works is not, you know, sort of a simple goal and that there's not like a unique. Method that one would use to get there. I think it's perhaps more that uh, there's a interdisciplinary um, conversation. More people are getting interested in neuroscience, and I think there's also more kind of societal interest. People are who are not necessarily embedded inside the neuroscience community are getting interested. So I think that a lot of the things that are being uh, done or discussed in the context of the Brain Initiative of things that were already going on in the community. It's not going to be that big a uh, news to people who were um, doing that research. However, I think it perhaps will be news or is news to people who are outside the community but are, you know, perhaps in a focused way starting to think about the brain and maybe some of them want to um, get involved in this uh, research, right? Um, so maybe some physicists, some physicists were already working on neuroscience, but maybe there are others who are, because of the sort of increased attention or media coverage getting interested in doing something. So I would say that that's what's going on more than a moonshot or building up a super collider or something like that.
0: In the last year, the neuroscience community has organized several workshops to discuss the Brain Initiative and what we can reasonably expect to accomplish from it. The National Science Foundation recently sponsored such a workshop held at the campus of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which focused on comparative neuroscience.
2: The goal of the the Brain Initiative is more or less to understand how the brain works, which of course is an extraordinarily difficult and complex question. And so, clearly, this needs to be sharpened somewhat. And I think that's where this workshop comes into play.
1: Well, so there have been a number of workshops, and yes, I think the goal has been to define what the Brain Initiative will concretely mean for specific groups of people. So the the NSF has uh, had a couple of those that I've been involved with.
2: How were the various participants selected? Was it to cover a lot of areas of expertise?
1: Well, uh, there, there was a spectrum, but I think that there was also some focus on comparative neuroscience. People who work on different species coming together, think about brain evolution, So there there was a, you know, some focus, more of a biology focus than, let us say, you know, food development per se. And also interest in nervous systems of organisms that don't fall within the small number of organisms that typically go by the name uh, model organisms.
2: I understand all the participants brought their own perspectives and ideas, and I read a a number of the statements uh, of people going into it. Could you describe some of the different viewpoints? what they think the the brain initiative
1: should mean? You know, I I think that it's not so much perhaps, uh, it was not so much perhaps a discussion of what the brain initiative means because people have been talking about that for a while. There was more a a focus on what are some areas that people could meaningfully do some work together on or, you know, defining what are some conceptual issues that need to be solved. Uh, So there's some both practical and conceptual discussions, but they were somewhat focused, I would say. One example, I think for me the most important thing that I took away from the meeting was this idea of um, and this came about really while discussing during the meeting is this idea of a reference species. If you have followed the neuroscience literature, you will probably know about model organisms. So some organisms are studied a lot like the mouse or the fruit fly and they are called model organisms they could be thought of as models in the sense that some aspect of the human nervous system is being modeled perhaps or maybe there's a aspect of a pathology that is being modeled with like a genetic construct but one of the things that came up during this workshop is that there's sort of being a narrowing of focus in terms of the organisms that a lot of people study and that uh, to have sort of a, a healthy discussion about comparative or evolutionary biology one really needs to broaden out the spectrum of organisms that are studied. In fact, it used to be that there was such a broad spectrum of organisms being studied. If you look at the works by uh, classical neuroanatomists like Kahal uh, or Broadman, you know, they personally studied dozens of species. But that's very unusual in you know, today' particular laboratory, maybe one species would be studied, and if you go across the community, only a handful are studied so the, there was this kind of idea that how how do we get away from that and go back to a sort a larger comparative approach and in that context, this idea of uh, reference organism or reference species was discussed, and these would sort of be anchor points across the phylogenetic tree and perhaps for each of those organisms, you know uh, the brain would be mapped in different ways, whether it be the structure or the dynamics under certain circumstances, you know down at the molecular level or maybe uh, some more uh, macroscopic whole brain level. If you think about it, if you say the brain initiative, there is no such thing as the brain, right? There's not one brain out there and even if you picked one species, there are individual variations between brains. The sort of recognition of this phylogenetic diversity, which I think was prominent at this meeting, and, and the discussion about how to move that discourse forward.
2: What do you think are the most important insights or principles that can be gleaned from comparative studies, and how will that improve our understanding of the human brain?
1: Um, Well, those are really two separate questions uh, because insights we may gain from comparative studies may or may not help us understand the human brain, but they may still be interesting insights, right? So one of the things that interests me because I uh, think about engineering principles, but I think also interests other evolutionary biologists who were present at the meeting, is if you look at how the brain solves, I say the brain, how the brain of a particular species solves a a particular problem that's uh, ecologically or evolutionarily important for that species. So supposing you find out that a particular brain circuit is involved in solving this problem, now you could go across species and you could ask, well, is it the same circuit? Uh, If You know, different species are solving the same problem. Um, And if you find out it's the same circuit, there are two kinds of reasons why it could be the same circuit. One is common ancestry. Uh, this is called homology, so it's the same circuit because it belonged to a common ancestor and the circuit was useful, so it was kept in place by all the descendant species. Or it could be convergent evolution where uh, you have this one circuit that has evolved repeatedly, uh, but it was not present in the common ancestor. And that, that's very interesting because that tells you that somehow it's necessary, something that biologists refer to as uh, function-shaping form, Um, and something that I would see as uh, the indication that there is some maybe uh, underlying what one might call an engineering principle or a design principle that uh, is driving the structure of that circuit, right? So from a comparative study, one could gain an understanding of uh, what the, how things have evolved, you know, whether there was a common ancestor and also maybe gain insight into engineering principles that one could then take uh, and apply to um, building uh, smart machines, right? Uh, Now, in terms of humans, of course, it's important to know if there are things that are conserved from humans uh, to other species, then it might be easier to study in the other species. And if uh, such a thing has a clinical or medical implication, then a study which you couldn't do in humans, you would have to do in these other species. Now, there the comparative or evolutionary approaches is useful because if you get stuck studying one particular species, then maybe you don't know the full context of how it relates to the human. You know, I would say there's both basic science and uh, maybe clinical implications of doing, uh, not clinical but medical research implications of doing comparative studies.
2: What was the ultimate conclusion or outcome of this, this workshop? What effect is this going to have on funding or the, the course of
1: grant initiative research? Well, there's going to be a paper that describes the discussions that took place at the workshop. The workshop generated uh, interest that uh, continued beyond the workshop. So, for example, I... Told you about this idea of reference species. It's got discussed in another little informal meeting that took place at the Society for Neuroscience this year in San Diego, and and the group of us will probably uh, take that idea further forward, sort of in collaborative research. And there are probably other such things that are also happening that I'm not quite aware of, but I think that you know some spontaneously formed collaborations will probably come out of the workshop I, I can't really comment on the funding aspect the next steps are being determined at a communal level or you know through uh, some kind of uh, community discussion process I uh, uh, like I said you know there are there's a focus on developing tools there's also questions that have been raised about conceptual and sort of What are the science questions that are going to be asked and answered? And one thing that I would uh, particularly like to see is, and I think is particularly important, is sort of keeping a focus on what the questions are, you know, what questions are we asking, not just get focused on tools. Uh, That seems to be very important. So uh, you can call this theory, you can call this concept, you can call it whatever you want, but uh, this seems to be an important problem, an important direction. Um, So, and and, uh, for sure, I think that since there is an emphasis on the tool development, uh, one would expect and hope that uh, some interesting new tools and methods will come out of the activities that are going to be um, carried out as a result of this initiative.
2: So in the future, if we're going to hear anything significant with respect to the BRAIN initiative, it's going to be the development of new tools. Otherwise, the neuroscience community is going to continue forward as a hive mind sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fair uh, fair statement. I, I think that one other thing that we can expect to see is, is somewhat more interdisciplinary work, uh, simply because this has generated a lot of excitement in other communities. So perhaps people who are waiting on the sidelines, sort of thinking about the brain, will kind of take a plunge and actually start doing some collaborative work. What I uh, you asked what would I like to see or hope to see, and I, I would really like to see some of the more conceptual or theoretical questions addressed as to what is it that is holding us up in terms of our, uh, you know, is it that we are really held up by tools, or are we uh, are we asking the right questions, right? So I, I, I would like to see more of a uh, kind of an open-ended discussion about that, because the hive mind is also shaped by ideas. And if ideas are regarded as something that's important, particularly now, um, perhaps there will be more discussion about ideas and concepts. More specifically, what do you think are the
2: biggest conceptual hurdles for understanding how the brain works, things that are going to need to be addressed?
1: Well, I think one of the big, uh, there are, I'm sure many, um, one that I'm particularly interested in is that of, of putting things together, right? So we are particularly good at studying one system or another. We have gained a lot of insight into the visual system, for example, and people are sort of gearing up to do that in even greater detail than had been done before. But how do the different parts fit together? and What are the theoretical tools that you need to put things together? I mean, Is it the case that we have the correct theoretical tools already, or do we need to develop new ones? I think that's a particularly important question. I'm sorry, I did not uh, perhaps answer your question. Can you ask it again?
2: Well, the question was just, what are the most important conceptual hurdles for understanding the brain? Like, are we hitting any sorts of walls?
1: Yeah, I think we are hitting some walls, uh, and, and I think the where you can see that we are hitting walls is that we are not very good at doing some things, even though our computational power has increased a lot. So, for example, even though we have made a lot of progress in, uh, let us say, uh, machine translation, you can go online and uh, you can translate one language into another, it's obvious to even the naive person that these online translation systems which employ very large computers, very large databases don't really work very well, right? So when you look at something like that or you look at, you know, a face recognition system or a speech recognition system and they look very good uh, from afar, if you start delving into it, you instantly realize that their performance is very poor compared with our biological performance. Or you could look at walking robots, you know, I could go on and on. So it is clear that brains of different species, particularly of particularly humans, can do things which we don't get we are not able to match the performance like not even close, using artificial means so that to me is an indication that we are missing perhaps something fundamental it may not be just doing more, like putting in more nodes to the sort of network models we will already have built, it may be the architecture that is being used for those network models is wrong. So you can't add more nodes um, and expect to gain success. Um, So I think one conceptual hurdle is simply that we have existence proof that a lot of biological organisms can do a lot better than machines, and we don't understand uh, how that happens. The other conceptual issue that I raised was that of integration how do different systems fit together? And it's sort of a societal issue as well, right? It is, the system is so complex that it is very difficult for any individual researcher to really master all the disciplines. But, you know, these disciplines are human-made things. Um, We say physics, chemistry, biology, well, those are artifacts of having universities. You know, nature doesn't, if you get a a brain, it doesn't say physics here, chemistry there, biology there, It's just one thing. So the conceptual hurdle there for us is how do we get around our disciplinary boundaries uh, but you know without losing all the expertise because then we just kind of degenerate into qualitative discussions that don't really take us forward. So is there a possibility of doing high level interdisciplinary research where uh, different threads come together? Um, that's a conceptual issue. How do you do that?
2: I have just one more kind of open-ended question. And uh, we've talked a lot about the importance, even necessity, of comparative studies. Are there any principles of the human brain or mind that we may never fully understand by studying other species? Like, are there any things that may elude us without directly studying the human brain?
1: Mm Yeah, I do think that there may be uh, some human uh, species-specific uh, capabilities. One that uh, has been controversial but certainly has been pointed to before is uh, human uh, language. The particular level of complexity in the human thought and language It's not to say that other animals don't think and don't have something, uh, don't have communication systems. It's just that humans seem to have something that's qualitatively different. We have these very elaborate cognitive uh, processes that are reflected in, you know, us putting together grammatically correct long sentences, which have a structure that uh, in linguistics you would put in a, in a particular grammatical category that uh, at least some people claim is human uh, species specific. So it, it might well be that there, there are some things that are specific to humans. That I, I don't think that they have to be mysterious and I don't think they will ultimately be understandable but sure there could be species differences and there probably are
2: Thanks Do
1: you have any last comments or thoughts? Well I mean the thing I thought that I always try to leave people with is uh, what are the questions that we are asking
0: Hey Grocketeers that was Partha Mitra thanks for listening that is all we have time for today